Hey, Tracy, how are you? I'm good, how are you? I'm doing really, really well. Thanks for asking. Um, okay, so we have just wrapped up the five-part series, six-part series on, you know, Patrick Lencioni's The Five Dysfunctions of a Team. And during the last couple episodes, we had asked our listeners for questions and they delivered. So this is a little bit different than we typically do, but we're going to go back and take turns and like talk through these questions that people have submitted so that we can provide some more details on some of the things people had questions on in the series that we just did. Are you up for that? I'm up for it. Sounds fun. Okay. Welcome to the Overly Human Podcast, where we discuss all things human in the workplace, because it's not just business, it's personal too. So you have the list of questions, so you're going to go ahead and read some off and then we'll take a stab at answering them. Yep. Okay. So let's start here then. Uh, The question is, is Rob gave a disclaimer about power structures at the beginning of the episode about accountability. Can you talk a little bit about power structures for those who are not as familiar? So maybe we got to start with a good definition. Yeah, so you gave a disclaimer about power structures um, in relation to accountability. So I think when we think about that, it's, um, and I believe you were talking about you know, the different levels of people who hold power and holding each other accountable. And this comes into relation with the peer-to-peer accountability versus just the leader being the one who holds everybody accountable. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Um, Is really looking at that, the difference between what peers get and what the leader gets from an assumed position, having power over somebody else. And, you know, I think that absolutely colors a lot of what humans see in the interactions, right? Like, you know, we talk about this a lot, you know, on staff is there are some kinds of feedback that I may never get because I am someone's boss or the owner of the company or lots of different things. And those are the power structures we're talking about is those implicit contracts that everyone understands that we if we're not careful, nobody gives voice to. Exactly. Exactly. And I think when we talk about accountability, when we're doing our workshops, we try to get that out in the open. We we try to get teams to talk about what are the barriers to -to peer-to-peer accountability? And do people feel safe holding a leader accountable, even if you're in a quote unquote kind of lower role um, or a lesser role than maybe the CEO or COO or anybody on a leadership team, can you, when you're all working together on a project or you've all come to an agreement about a goal that you've set, hold each other equally accountable? And that's a really interesting conversation. And it actually does a great job of uncovering what some teams, some of their internal politics might be. And it's it's really fun to see teams that are able to hold their leaders accountable. They feel safe. They feel known. They feel, um, you know, equal in that sense of a relationship where they can call out a leader just as a leader can call them out. 
And so that's what we're looking for is kind of this, even if our roles aren't the same, or maybe even the hierarchy isn't equal, that on a relationship level and on a project level, when we're holding each other accountable, there is an equality there. There's an equality of being able to say, you know, you're not holding up to your end of the bargain. And that's a beautiful thing. It takes a lot. That's why there's a pyramid here and we have to start with trust. It takes a lot to get there. We don't start with accountability. We start with trust and healthy conflict. Then we're able to, to work our way up to that. But when you can, boy, you have a productive team. You have a safe team. You have a team that that really meshes well together. Yeah. And that's right. Like that's, uh, that's exactly what the point that needs to be made and probably is the foundation of a lot of the questions we got was this starts with trust. Mm. Like we don't get to skip to accountability and results because that's what we're after. We start with trust and conflict in a healthy way. And we build on top of that to get to these other more, you know, advanced or higher order things um, that allowed that really cohesive group to work well together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Trust is a big thing. We had a couple of questions about trust that were sent to us as well, but um, I think it takes the longest um, for people to really feel that you have it um, and it's real and you can see it work out in the, in the workplace and really put it to the test. And I think this model is a great model for being able to sort of test your team to see yep. if you really have the deep kind of trust we're talking about here. Okay. I got another one here. Okay. All right. And this is kind of in the same vein. So that's why I'm going to group them together. It says, I am not sold on peer to peer accountability working outside of a managerial level leadership team. There are too many factors, not to mention DE and IRIS. How do you encourage peer-to-peer accountability in a way that ensures some of your team members don't feel pressure to be a team player in scenarios that could be considered harassment? Mm, that's a good mm. one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that is a good there's, one. Th- there's very few like softballs here. So... <laughs> Well, I feel my, my gut reaction to this is you have to teach the model. And it's kind of like what we were just saying, that you have to, to explain to people that it starts with trust, how you get trust. You have to then move through each stage of the model for them to understand what peer-to-peer accountability means. And that, you know, we're talking about when a commitment's made and agreed to by a team that you know, you're staying committed. And I also think it's about communication and clarity. And we talked about that in that episode, that when you come to a commitment as a team, that this is what we're going to do, and whether it's a project or whether it's a change in culture or whether whatever it is that we've agreed we're going to do, that once we agree to it, we actually say, okay, we are going to also commit to holding each other accountable. What does that look like? Right. And have that play out because if people don't understand what it looks like, they're not going to know how to behave in the way that we're talking about here. And if we don't agree to not just the commitment, but also the commitment to accountability, then nobody's going to do it. 
So it takes practice and it can become habitual on a team and expected and accepted, but it has to be explained, taught, committed to, openly communicated. And these are questions that a lot of teams, if you're not living out this model, have never said at a team meeting. You know, we can we agree to a lot of things in meetings, but you don't often hear leaders or whoever's running the meeting at the end of the meeting say, okay, guys, here's a recap of what we've committed to. Now, are we going to hold each other responsible and accountable to, to living this out? Because we have a due date of next Monday. So what do we need to do between now and next Monday to make sure we're holding each other accountable? That language I don't hear too often. But if you have really adopted this model and your leadership is communicating in that way, then it takes away that fear. It takes away that considered harassment that they're asking in this question because they're, they're, that's something separate, right? And we talked about that in healthy conflict. You know, you have aggression, you have harassment, you also have silence and, you know, people not speaking at all, but you have healthy conflict in the middle. And that's what we're looking for here when we're holding each other accountable is a healthy way of holding each other accountable. Yeah. And I think that like, it's not only the studying of these things, it's practicing them, right? Mm-hmm. Like as you do them, you have to get good at them. Teams don't just read this book or pick up this model and say, tomorrow we will start behaving like this and go super deep and try to hold each other accountable on tr- tricky things. Right? Mm-hmm. Like it's trust is a practice that we build over time that we can then practice good healthy conflict on top of which then we can get good commitment on common things from each other which then allows us to even have the peer-to-peer accountability right like we can't skip you can't skip any of these things and you know there is absolutely a place for like reporting directly to you know hr whatever the case may be if there's harassment or things that are against the values and things that the collective group has decided we're not going to do but we're trying to like also define like the fear of things we're talking about in this case we're holding each other accountable to it's the shared goals that we've decided that we hold together Mm -hmm. right yeah and the shared contract of behavior that we've agreed is acceptable and I think you make a great point about time. It does take time. And and I often tell people at the end of these workshops that you have to give each other grace because it does take time for it to, become, to come naturally, right? And a good way of learning is to come back and say, after a project's done or a goal was met or not met, to say, what we do right and what we do wrong? You know, why did we miss this deadline? What could we do differently? And get people to speak honestly about it, you know? And if somebody says, well, you know, it's because Joe missed this deadline. Well, did anybody go and talk to Joe? Maybe Joe needed help. Maybe Joe wasn't, you know, being a self-starter. Like, what is it? Let's, let's get it out there and in this safe way sort of discuss where we missed the mark so we can be better next time. And it's not because we want to get in some sort of blame game. It's because we want to be better. And if we always couch it that way, you know, we can make progress. Yeah, we want to understand the why behind things, right? Mm -hmm. Like so many, you know, this is something I was reading recently. Like we've all heard of like the, you know, the five W's, right? The who, what, why, when, you know, 
of stuff that we can ask questions. And then there's a, another model that I've recently stumbled across that the military uses, which is the five whys. And it's continuing asking why for root cause analysis to get to the root of something, right? We keep asking why until it's really, really simple. And there's this famous story about, you know, a monument and, you know, there being too much, uh, you know, too many, too much bird droppings that they have to keep cleaning and spending all this money. And, you know, like, so what do they do? They're actually destroying the monument because they're using all these abrasive chemicals to clean up the bird droppings and disinfect it. So they start asking why. Well, there's the birds are there to get the bugs. Well, why? Because the lights are on. Well, why? And they get down to it and they keep asking why until they end up in this place where they change the schedule for the lights by an hour. So the bugs and the birds can't be there at the same time. And they, they, that's the root of their problem. But they, they ask why a whole bunch of times. Now, this works really well when we're trying to like diagnose things that are going on. But at the same time, like we have to understand that we're, this is mostly a human model, right? And sometimes asking people why a bunch of times they did something is a reason is because they did. <laughs> so there's a balance there, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And I like I love that example because it really I'm a big proponent of getting to the root of the problem because so many teams miss the mark because they're in a hurry and they just want to do the Band-Aid solution or take the first thing that's said. And when you're really trying to live out you know, this model, it takes, like we just said, it takes time and we need to slow down and figure out what's going on and, and the why behind it. What what are the root problems that are tripping us up? So I like that. Um, okay. So here's a, maybe here's a softball. What are some signs that a team trusts leadership? Ooh. Well, I think, um, probably the first thing that pops to mind for me is that they'll come to you with their mistakes or their issues, and they'll ask for help. I think that's a big one. If you have people calling you up or walking in your office and, and they're saying, hey, um, I messed up, I need your help, then you know they feel safe with you. Mm-hmm. I think that's a, a really big one. Um, if they challenge you in a meeting, they feel safe and they can challenge you, I think um, that's also a sign that they trust you. And because we talked, when we talked about trust, we talked about people knowing each other. And I think if you feel like your staff knows you and you know them, they most likely trust you. And I think one sign of that, at least I found with my team is that they can joke with you, you know, they can poke fun at you um, and feel safe about that. I can remember a, uh, really it's so funny that this sticks in my head but I can remember being in a meeting we had this big HGTV event and Vanilla Ice was coming and he um he had this show on DIY remodeling show and his real name is Robert Van Winkle I remember we were going over the guest list and I said to my team um who is Robert Van Winkle and they made so much fun of me because they were like, that's Vanilla Ice. How could you not even know who Vanilla Ice is? And I was so embarrassed. I can remember feeling my face being red, but they were making so much fun of me and we were laughing so hard. And I remember at that moment thinking, like, that's the type of team we had, you know? Like, they, they knew they could poke fun at me. They knew I wasn't going to get angry. We just knew each other really, really well. 
And yeah, that developed over time, but it also was because there was a high level of trust there that, you know, we could be ourselves with each other, but the respect was still there too. Um, so I think if you feel that balance of safety, respect, knowing each other, safe, you know, just, a, um, and you believe that you have that, I think that's a good sign that um, your, your staff trusts you. How do you know your staff trusts you? Well, I, the thing, the clue that I've started listening for is when they bring something to my attention and they use our values to talk about why they disagree or how they think about it is, you know, we talk a lot about our values and what we believe and how we collectively try to make decisions. But the fact that they'll bring something that's a challenge to be like, hey, like we say this and this is how I interpret this in this situation has provided so much illumination for me over the years. Like, oh, like this is great. We're, we're, we're having a like a honest conversation about the interpretation of our values and how they apply to situations. And I've learned so much. And I feel like those conversations can only happen if there's like real trust that I will do my best to and make decisions in accordance to what we say we believe mm. and proving that over time. Yeah. Yeah. And I think on the flip side, a sign that you're not trusted would be the opposite of that. You're not being challenged. People aren't bringing things to your attention. You're the last person to know. Um, there's, there's almost a feeling of eggshells around you. People get quiet when you walk into a room um, those are some signs that some things maybe aren't right and maybe you need to do some investigation on how people feel about you. Yeah. Uh, okay, here's another one. What simple things have helped build trust in organizations you have worked with? And I'm going to let you take this one because this is like your wheelhouse. <laughs> I think um, I love the exercises that Patrick Lencioni talked about in the book, and I use them all the time with teams. And they're really simple ways of building trust, and they all revolve around knowing each other. The more we know each other, the more we're going to trust each other. And I don't mean that we have to be the best of friends, you know, but if we just know who the other person is, we tend to have more grace and have more um, understanding and empathy towards each other. We don't assume the worst. Um, so the history profiles uh, exercise that we talked about in the trust episode where everybody talks about something that they overcame in their childhood, um, I think is a really powerful exercise just to give us a teeny tiny little peek into what it was like being you growing up. I think the DISC Profiling Disc Workshop is super powerful. I think it's really fun, first of all. And I also think it's just really good to understand what our behavioral style preferences are, um, what we how we tend to show up, and what's good about that, and what can be sometimes be bad about that. I also think another simple thing is to just add in your meetings, like we often give teams, you know, samples of um, meeting agendas, and we always have that start your meeting with one personal, one professional best. So when you're having a meeting with a team, to start with some sort of personal question, even if it's silly, 
like what's your favorite movie or whatever but one personal like we we say do the one personal best for the week and you'll hear people say you know I helped my kid learn how to ride a bike or you know I successfully reorganized my pantry like just sometimes those little things give us a a little peek into who the person is and those peeks into their lives help us to know them better, maybe like them better, understand them better. And then that really helps um, when we're working together, working on a project or whatever, something might pop into mind like, oh, okay, now I get why he's leaving because I remember he said it's baseball season with his kids. You know, so those types of things help us to have better relationships with each other, better personal um, interactions with each other. Yeah, well said. (laughs) All right. Uh, Here's another question. Can you dig more into this from a perspective of radical candor being measured not at the speaker's mouth, but at the listener's ear? Mm. What can companies do to ensure this truly permeates throughout their culture, especially when there are some natural silos created within a leadership group structure? Um, I I think that this is a great question, first off, Um, but like, this is gets to the heart of when we talked a lot about this in the communication episode is it's not what I intend to say. It's what you hear mm-hmm. and how you interpret it. This is that impact versus intent. And, you know, I don't ever want to live in a world where we say, you know, intent is completely irrelevant because, you know, there is implications for that, but impact is more important. And we have to know people like to your point, about well enough to know that how our communication is being received and interpreted that, you know, you have to have deeper conversations sometimes. Like, you know, I, I'm a, I love to have conversations with people that have to be direct and feedback and then ask at the end, well, how did that make you feel? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, let's get, let's, let's talk about how that, because I think we talked about this in another episode that, People won't remember what you said, but they'll remember how you made them feel at the end. Mm -hmm. And all that gets wrapped up into radical candor and telling truth and all of that in a way that people can actually turn actionable things into it and do something with it. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, the, the quote in that book is clarity gets measured at the listener's ear, um, not at the speaker's mouth. And I love that quote because so often you'll hear people say, well, wasn't, wasn't I clear in what I said to you? You know, why didn't you get it done? It, it, I, I was crystal clear. And it's like, well, you thought you were clear, <laughs> you know, but to me, it wasn't clear. And so we as leaders have to get very um, good at saying, did I miss anything? Or, you know, do, do, does everybody understand what I'm trying to say? you know, asking those questions instead of just giving directives and walking out of the room because there's that's no guarantee that you were clear. Um, and we all receive information differently. And I think, you know, one of the things I love about that book is that radical candor is challenging directly and caring personally. That's the goal is to have both. So you're direct while you're caring. And I think that gets back to to what you're saying. Like you have to be sensitive 
to the context of the situation, to how you're being perceived. Um, and radical candor really only works if you have both. So the person needs to feel included, cared about. And part of feeling cared for is the leader actually taking that extra step and saying, have I been clear? Do you guys understand? Do you need to me explain it in a different way? Because everybody processes information differently and at different rates. And we have to be sensitive to that. I think it's uh, easy to say, but like radical candor is not brutal honesty. Like those are two different things that we Mm -hmm. have to know that are different. And you know, the whole idea of radical candor is, is knowing and delivering things that are truth, that are hard to hear in some cases, in a way they can be interpreted and be clear about them. And the other thing that goes perfectly in this is that commitment step that we talked about, right, in the pyramid, is being able to ask everybody, do you know what we've agreed upon? Are you committed, right? That's one of those steps. That's a check and balance of like, okay, this is what we're committing to. Is everybody in a way going to say yes, Right. And then if you have the trust and the conflict piece figured out, somebody who's not clear on that can say like, hey, I'd like to get some clarity before I commit to a thing that I don't know what it is, right? Like we can build these checks and balances and these little checkboxes into these systems so that there is built in places for people to stand up and say, hey, like, hold on, can I, can we hash this out a little bit more? Mm -hmm. I'd like to make this clear for me. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, part of this question asked if, you know, how do you, how do companies ensure it truly permeates their culture? And I think with anything here, like if you really like this model and you believe in it, whether it's radical candor or whether it's the the five behaviors um, of a cohesive team, you can measure against that, right? So just like I always encourage teams to put their core values on reviews, and, and have each person kind of rank how they are doing, red, yellow, green against their core values. You can also add this into a peer review of how are people showing up with caring personally and challenging directly. So for challenging directly, one to five, how am I showing up for caring personally? When, and this helps you as a leader and each person on the team understand, well, I, I seem to be a little stronger on the challenging directly and a little low on the caring personally. So I need to work on that. I need to work on my delivery. I need to work on my empathy. Or if it's flipped and I'm high on caring personally, but not challenging directly, I know I need to get more brave. I need to, to say what I need to say and stop pussyfooting around. Right. So I think um, there's easy, simple, quick tools and tricks that we can implement if we're serious about this. But the leadership has to be serious. It can't just be a one-time workshop or one-time teaching. If you want it to permeate your culture, then you need to start operationalizing it and really putting this language into your culture. Absolutely. And, you know, we can't ever escape the fact that leadership matters and being able Mm -hmm. to demonstrate this behavior to our teams in a public way where we have to be vulnerable Mm -hmm. with them and let them see us be vulnerable as leaders that that'll do more to help instill that into our culture than anything else because people want to be led and they want to follow people who are willing to demonstrate the things they say are important to them yep absolutely absolutely it's a good reminder I got one more. Okay. Okay. 
Last question. How do you adapt all of this for quick growth in a company? Mm. Like what, what's happening if things are scaling like crazy, all of that fun stuff. Is there any way to get there quicker? Cause we've said time three or four times now. I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think it falls partly on the leadership and it falls partly on the long-term members of the team. So I think if you really are adopting this model to your team, the five behaviors, that it needs to be part of your onboarding. Like you really need every person that's onboarded needs to understand what I call is the culture's language. So what is the language that your culture uses? If it's disprofile, then they need to know what their disprofile is and that of the team they're working with. If it's five dysfunctions, they need to know, like, this is the model. Here's a, a quick little overview of that model. You'll hear the, our leadership talk about it often in our team meetings. So I want you to understand what it is. And we, and also having quarterly updates, you know, so if you do a workshop or you do a teaching on this as a team and you go through the book, then you need to be updating quarterly on how is it going and I, I tell teams there's an online survey that you can take and send out to your team. We do it for all teams that before we do a workshop to measure how they're doing on each level of the pyramid. And then I strongly suggest that six months or a year later, you take that same survey so you can, again, track how you're doing. And, you know, it's just like anything in life. You know, there's different phases and some areas are going to be stronger and weaker. And then those areas might flip because you've worked on them and maybe forgotten the other areas you used to be strong. Um, so I think that the ongoing commitment to the model will help with your quick growth because it'll just be just like you're teaching them your systems, you know, how you're designing your dev work, whatever it is that you're teaching them, um, your project management philosophies, you're going to teach them your culture philosophies as well. And that just has to be baked into onboarding. And too often people forget that. They think onboarding is like getting your key card, your benefits, and learning, you know, what team you're on and how projects work. And that's a big part of it. But too often they, they leave out the core value training or the, you know, our five dysfunction training. Um, but you need a culture piece to your onboarding. Yeah, it's intentionality, right? Mm-hmm. Like. That's the answer for so much of this is being able to be intentional with it. You know, the things that we put our time into and the things we figure out to how to measure will get done, yeah. right? And if we take our eye off the ball, then things will drift. And yes. I think that's just the name of the game with that we have to accept. And, you know, like I, <laughs> like quick growth is an interesting piece of it is talked a lot about in our industry in general is how do we scale rapidly or whatever else we want to do. Right. And like, I think that sometimes we need to take a step back and sometimes figure out what scaling smartly is. And that's in a way that takes these things into account, not only what onboarding looks like for, like you said, projects and getting work done, but also how we treat people and finding people that are, you know, that are going to act you know, with in, within the values that we've said are important and that are going to be, you know, good cultural ads and bring diverse perspectives. But with that, you know, operate in a way that is trust based, mm -hmm. right? 
like I think this is a, this has been a whole nother episode on trust because we've said it so many <laughs> times, but like that's how foundational this stuff is and how intentional we have to be to bake that in and let people know that this is where things start. Yeah. And I think too, the last thing I'll say about quick growth and companies or growth period, um, one thing that it can be hard for the team who's mastered something like this, mastered five dysfunctions or done a lot of work on a disc workshop or whatever, and then all of a sudden you add a, a, a new group of people to the mix, sometimes you can see that there's a little friction. Like people get sad because they're like, oh, we had this great thing and we had it all figured out. We all were trusting each other and now there's all these new people and uh, and they can kind of lose hope or ground. And so it's, it's really um, on the leader to make sure that we are, that we're, basically painting the picture of this is a good thing like our growth if we if we need to grow as a company that adding new people yes you know we do have to bring them up to speed on things and yes will it change our culture of course it will you know it it just changes things and we have to learn to adapt that is a skill that we should all be striving for and especially for bringing in you know i know a lot of people have dei initiatives and they're bring, hopefully bringing in more diverse population into their workplace. And so that also is an interesting thing to think about with this model. We have to understand, and we talked about this in the conflict episode, is understanding how different cultures, you know, deal with conflict and who might be more reserved, who might be more emotional. And and remembering that when we think about diversity and inclusion, that we're really the, the biggest hiccup when you talk to people who um, are in a minority group is feeling like you don't belong and that being a systematic thing, right? We all universally as humans know what it means to not feel like you don't belong. But for minorities, they feel that all the time. It's a systematic thing. And so we have to break that down. So when we're adding new people to our team and they're diverse on top of it or from different cultures or backgrounds, we need to make sure they they don't feel like outsiders. We need to make sure that they feel like they belong, that we have awareness of who they are, that we're educated and have some empathy. Um, and so we don't want this model to be a way that the team becomes more insular and not welcoming of new team members or scared of new team members. We will always want it to be a model that has room for more room for more cultures, room for more people, room for more opinions, um, and be open and, um, and happy for that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's a, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, it's so important that these things, we look at them not as a destination, but as a journey, mm. Right. Absolutely. And I think that viewpoint shapes so much of all of the things we talk about on this podcast as you don't arrive somewhere and just get to be there and be in happiness and be in nirvana in that spot. This is all work that has to be plugged away. And part of our um, monthly, weekly, daily practice to build these things, to continue on to the journey, continue learning and adopting because things are going to change. The people are going to change. The The people involved are going to change. The The thing we're trying to achieve is, you know, going to be slightly different. And we have to be able to walk that walk and prepare 
each other to take that journey together, which is really what these five steps are all about is this is the framework of how we approach problems together to get the desired results. And, you know, like, that's it. Like that's, that's the, that, that, there it is, I guess. That's probably a good, <laughs> yep. probably a good way to wrap it up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Well, this is fun. We're going to have to do more questions in the future. I really we liked will. it. So thanks for everybody who sent in a question. We appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I think this wraps up our, Five Dysfunctions of a Team miniseries. So thank you, Tracy. This has been fun. Yeah. Thank you. It's been great. This podcast would not be possible without the amazing communications team at Sparkbox. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe and tell your friends to listen as well. The Overly Human podcast is brought to you by Navigate the Journey and Sparkbox. For more information on this podcast or to get in touch with Tracy or Rob, go to overlyhuman.com. Thanks so much for listening.